Hey Siri, play Machine Yearning. Here's Forgive and Forget, Isabella Machine Summers Remix by The Kooks. A Machine Yearning podcast. Hmm, I'm not finding anything for that. I'll do it myself. Machine Yearning from Assist. It's a podcast where we think and dream about the future of AI, the talking internet, and how we're reshaping our culture. Today, it's sci-fi writer, social observer, and dedicated AI enthusiast, Robin Sloan. Robin's path into AI has been fascinating. Starting with his neighborhood library in the Detroit suburbs, weaving through the early days of Max, and most recently, Robin has been intuiting and bootstrapping his way into some fascinating co-writing experiments with the machine. We find inspiration in the humility and daring he brings to his writing and the collaborative process. Robin has been talking about how, with his machine learning co-writing experiments, quote, the goal is not to make writing easier, but to make it harder. Robin is funny, welcoming, and he challenges us to think about new ways to look at what's possible when the machine delivers lovely text like, the slow sweeping tug moved across the Emerald Harbor. We loved our time with him, and we think you will too. Enjoy. Hey man, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming by. My pleasure. I'm gonna start off, I want one question. Did you always wanna be a writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a public library kid, you know? Really? I spent a lot, yeah, absolutely. I spent a lot of time in the Troy Public Library in Troy, Michigan, where I grew up. And on some level, I was the kind of kid that, like as soon as I saw those books on the shelf, I knew I wanted to have a book with Do you remember my- the first book you saw? The first book, no. I do remember I was a, a devotee of the Choose Your Own Adventure books. There was a little wire spinner rack that had those on it. Um, and I like books of myths too, big picture books of like Greek myths. Why? Oh man, I don't know. They just were, they were magnetic. One in particular, there's, there's actually a whole cult around this book. It's called Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths. And it's, it's huge. It's like a the size of a coffee table book, but it's for kids beautiful illustrations just these total like rich colorful illustrations you can like fall into and these really great crisp like compelling kind of renditions of all the greek myths and uh <laughs> i used to check that out from the school library from the elementary school library every week i would just go back and like check it out again basically i had a lock on greek myths if there was any other elementary school student <laughs> in my school who wanted to like learn these greek myths that was not available to them seriously <laughs> yeah for a year <laughs> When did you go from reading to writing? You know, pretty immediately. And that's where it ties though from the beginning or almost the beginning into computers because we had a Mac Plus in my house. What was um, a Mac Plus? The, the old Mac Plus, that was like... My brother got me into Macs when they turned colors. Yeah, yeah. This, the, oh yeah, this is pre-color. This is this black and white screen. This is somewhere in the middle of the 80s, maybe 86, 87. My dad brought home a Mac Plus. Um, it was really the first computer that I had used. There probably had been some Apple computers at school or whatever, but it was the reading and the writing and the books plus that computer and like learning how to use that computer and kind of hack on that computer a little bit. A lot of my earliest creations weren't like handwritten on paper. They were typed into whatever text editor that was. Well, that ties into now. It seems like you've always been fascinated by these writing tools. Yeah. Like talk about these writing tools you've been building now. 
Do, I mean, do they feel the same as then? You're, yeah. Like your blog post I read, you're basically in a DOS text editor. Yeah, yeah. It does. You know, it, it does feel the same because there's that sense of like, I'm probably a little too interested in the tools sometimes to tell you the hmm. truth, you know, to my, to my own distraction. I'll get kind of wrapped up in thinking about the tools and trying new tools and creating my own tools where probably I should be spending at least some of that time actually using them and, and creating more things. But I don't know. That's just my brain. And yeah, and so given any new technology, and I mean, this has been true of like the web, the early web, it's been true of uh, mobile phones and like the kind of the interface of the, the app on the screen and, and now machine learning stuff. For some reason, my impulse is always like, yeah, how can I learn to write something with that or on that huh. in like a new way? And when did, when did it go from a new tool to like kind of the thing, I'd love you to explain like what, I've read about now and what you're working on now as it relates to machine machine learning. I almost said machine learning. <laughs> point taken. Uh, and what got you inspired by these new tools? Where, where did when did it go from writing to you saw machine learning to applying that to yeah, what you're doing? Also? I had uh, like everybody read a ton about machine learning and AI tools and all the kind of hype and self driving cars and all that kind of stuff for years. I ran and thought it was interesting, but no more interesting than any number of other kind of like cool high-tech things that you read about in Wired or The Economist or The Atlantic or whatever. I ran across a blog post um, that a lot of people read and liked by this uh, researcher named Andre Karpathy. Karpathy. What, what does he do? You know, now he, I think he works at Tesla. He At the time that he wrote the post, he was at Stanford. He was, a, he was a PhD student at Stanford and had been doing all sorts of work, you know, on just all kinds of different neural networks and applications. And, and on top of all that, just had, and I think still has, a real gift for explaining it and kind of sharing what he knows. So he'd written this post about using recurrent neural networks to generate text. And I'm pretty sure the time I read the post, I wouldn't even have recognized the term recurrent neural network. <laughs> and I didn't, and again, it was my, my understanding of all this stuff was very kind of superficial. So the post was interesting. Um, and his voice is just really engaging and, and welcoming, you know, it's not sort of the voice of the, uh, of the engineer who's like, well, you probably won't understand this, but we'll try anyway. <laughs> he was like, he was like, he was like, all right, let's, I'm going to break this down and tell you how this works. But I love the, how you start moving the water bottles around like they're Legos. <laughs> that's right. That's like, right. You can see the engineer. The, pours his water yeah. 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 <laughs> the, um, the thing, the thing that really caught me though, it wasn't the technical parts of the post or the neural network stuff. It was that he, he of course shared examples of text that these systems had generated and the text was really weird and really beautiful. I mean, that's what it was. I saw there, like, in the shape of the text itself, something that I found really artful and kind of magnetic and interesting. If that hadn't been the case, if it had been technically interesting, but then, you know, the text it had generated had been really flat or kind of generic or blah, then I think I would have moved on to the next post and the next post and the next and never even have spent another second thinking about these tools. Do you remember what it was that was weird and beautiful? <laughs> I don't remember from, from his post. I do remember there was a phrase, a terrific phrase that leapt out at me after I had started tinkering with the tools myself. And this is probably the next week. I mean, yeah. pretty quickly that after that. That inspired you. Yeah, I was like, I should, I should try that out and see if I can you know, get anything interesting to come out. There were a bunch of tools all kind of bundled up that were just super easy to download. For a kind of enthusiast-grade programmer like yeah. me, I could just kind of download it get a bundle of text, set it up, get it training, and within a couple of days, start to see some output. And there was just this one little phrase. It's not going to sound very magical, um, but 
it wrote something. It was kind of this big blob of text because it kind of goes on and on and on. Of course, these machines, they, they, they do the text so well, but the, in the, on the level of the word and the phrase, it's so beautiful. But then you zoom out a little bit and you get to the level of like the sentence in the paragraph and it's basically like, an insane person writing because <laughs> it's just because they don't because at least not at least at, at the moment we're in now they don't kind of understand these larger structures of like the idea of a story having a plot or where it's going so who knows what else was happening in this text but i remember it wrote the slow sweeping tug moved across the emerald harbor wow. and it's a tiny thing but like sl the slow sweeping tug that's just a cool thing to say yeah. and a cool thing to read. Like slow sweeping is kind of a sounds weird like word. Opening to some book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, exactly. I don't know. Some book. I don't even know who would have wrote it. Moby Dick. It's like somebody wrote totally, the totally. slow sweeping tug. And that's, and, that's, and that's saying a lot. That's saying a lot that it was this thing generated by this computer program that had whatever that is, that touch of art or beauty, the unexpected. So that in my own, that was maybe the second like stroke of the piston. First I read this blog post and I tried this stuff myself. And I read about the slow sweeping tug moving across the Emerald Harbor. I'm like, wow. I will pursue this. <laughs> is, is the machine the artist thinking, artistic thinking, or is it the person? Well, it's a it's a combination in, in that case because of course you know in, in this in this particular instance you're training it on text, and so there is an underlying art which is all the art that's you know gone into all the books or you know screenplays or novels or whatever that you're kind of feeding into the system so that's all there but boy there's a lot of it and it's not like i mean sometimes you can you can do this very specific thing where you train a neural network on shakespeare and it like learns shakespeare and that's fine all the experiments i've done have been much larger sort of bodies of work so it's not just one author or one voice it's tons and tons and tons so it's all in there getting kind of just chopped up and stewed together and so I actually think then when you look at the text that comes out the other end, I actually think it is appropriate to ascribe some of that, some of that beauty and some of that creativity to the, to the machine itself wow. and to the neural network. Yeah. I think it's doing something new in the same way, in the same way that frankly, I think my brain does a certain kind of work when I sit and read like hundreds and hundreds of books and then go to write something myself. I mean, I think the two processes are, it's not the same, very different levels of complexity and sophistication but I think they're not totally different either. What did you mean when you said the goal to everything you're doing is not to make writing easier, it's to make it harder? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote that in a in one of the posts that was explaining. Because I read it and I was like, yeah. it was like one of those lines where it, it was like, wow, that makes a ton of sense, but I have no idea what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not to kind of retreat into analogy, but I think of uh, other tools and other domains, like something like oil paints. Uh, have you ever tried to paint with oil paint? No. Um, I've only tried it a couple times. Oil painting like my house at home and I couldn't get it on my hands for <laughs> yeah, weeks because right, right. I'm like, why are we using oil? Right. <laughs> yeah, well, so this it's a really gnarly media, it turns out. It's really hard to work with. Um, nobody would, nobody ever said, oh, you know, I want to just paint a nice, easy, I just want to have a chill afternoon of painting or of image making. Oh, I know, I'll use oil paints. It, they're really challenging and it takes a lot of skill to do all those effects that we now admire, you know, on the walls of museums. Um, people who play games sometimes talk about a skill ceiling, like the people who are really into like really challenging video games. They like them because the difference between people who are competent and people who are really, really good is like quite a difference. Whereas there's, there's, other, there's other games where you just get good at it and that's all there is. You're good at it. There's no such thing as being very good or extremely good or world-class good. 
And I think the same goes for artistic tools. Like, you know, if, if writing in a text editor is like drawing a portrait with a pencil or a piece of charcoal, what is writing with oil paints? What is that thing that's actually more difficult and it kind of like you have to learn some new techniques and you have to learn how to handle materials, but then in return, maybe you can produce something that's even more beautiful. Since we've been talking about writing as a craft, the challenge to improve your craft was defined in a few ways. Now, as Robin Sloan is describing, machine learning, the tools, and the ways you have to stretch as a writer and collaborator have changed the game, even if collaboration is with the machine. This is the essence of this podcast. Machine learning is all about the ways we navigate a new world where identity and technology and commerce and security have to live together in ways we can't even fully imagine yet. We have some great guests lined up, but we want to hear from you. Who would you like to hear on machine learning? Let us know. DM us at assist on Twitter. Coming up, Robin walks us through the importance of patterns and structures and how a machine that doesn't even understand what a word is can still learn how to communicate. I want to know more of what the tool is. Sure. Because I don't understand. I mean, I guess to take the listener there and me yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know what is this tool? Yeah, yeah. So basically, it's and this is where, you know, it's going to kind of expose the limits of my own understanding because I'm not one of these um, machine learning researchers. But I have used the tools a lot. It's almost always, not 100% all the time, but almost always something called a recurrent neural network. And it's actually at its heart, it's kind of beautifully simple. It's a neural network that learns about patterns, about yeah. sequences. And it could do that for musical notes. It could do it for numbers and some weird cryptic series that you wanted to understand. Like maybe you're trying to model a weather pattern or something like that. It can definitely do it for text, right? Because that's just text. Um, is always some kind of sequence, a sequence of words or a sequence of characters. And really all it learns, I mean, you could, you could imagine if we were just doing something simple on pencil and paper, trying to come up with a model of like English, we would determine really quickly that given the letter T followed by the letter H, it's very likely that the next letter is going to be E or A, very unlikely, like vanishingly unlikely that the next letter is going to be Z or Q, right? Yep. So you imagine that as a little kind of like, module of statistical understanding but the engine doesn't understand english the, that i mean that's actually the beautiful thing it doesn't understand english huh. on on moment one of like training this recurrent neural network it's not like you've coded it saying okay get ready you're going to break this up into words and here's what a sentence it doesn't is even know what a word is. oh no no idea it is just like opaque data does it see the t as a line that's horizontal and a line that's it, vertical, or you know, does it see the T as a letter? It sees the T as a letter. It sees the T actually, I mean, usually the way it sees it as, is as a number, as or as one in an array of, you know, 128 potential values or 256. It's really... Interesting. And that's, that's the astonishing thing. Starting from that kind of really, really cold start of just having no preconceptions about language or the world, and then training itself on... Again, and, and this is not like one short story or even one novel. I mean, to generate, kind of to bootstrap this deep understanding of the structure of English and the way that people write. The experiments that I've done that have, to me, been the most successful in terms of uh, generating the text that's been the most interesting and like the most right. interesting to read have been all with a big body of text that I collected from public domain scans of old science fiction magazines. And so it's hundreds and hundreds of megabytes of 
old science fiction stories from like the 60s and the 70s all kind of glommed together. Lots of different writers, different eras, but all with that, you know, that set of subjects and kind Got of it. that tone, that science fiction so tone. So apply it and then you use that how. Like you're like take you're sitting there at your computer, yeah. you're typing your fingers on words and let or you're typing your fingers on letters. Yeah. And then you have this robot that sits in your head, like and you hit robot help me. Like what Well, happens? so that's that's and for me that was the second step. It initially, because of course we're just using these tools that kind of researchers have developed, it's all happening on the command line and I didn't actually see how I could write with that. It was a it was kind of a curiosity, I'd be like, Whoa, look, the computer just generated like two pages of really weird, interesting text. Uh, okay. I'm not really sure like exactly how to use that. And so I did, it was, I was riding a BART train actually, um, coming into San Francisco. This is maybe a year and a half ago now, almost two years ago, riding a BART train, coming into San Francisco, thinking about this stuff. Cause I just kind of started tinkering with it. And I had the notion that what I wanted was really autocomplete. I wanted a super creative autocomplete. I wanted to be able to start typing something myself, hit tab or some key, and have this system, this statistical model of, you know, in this case, science fiction, complete the thought for me. And so that's what I ended up building. Interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, you could type, uh, the ship landed on the planet's surface. Uh, Captain Astro <laughs> stepped down and saw, and then you're like, well, what did she see? I don't know. Let's see what, let's see what the computer thinks. Hit tab and it'll fill it in. And huh. it... I mean, it, and it could say anything. What's good though, what's cool is that it's not garble. So how are forget, you yeah, thinking about this phenomenon? How should I think about this? What, what is, like, where is this going? Well, you know, I think there's kind of two branches for these kind of technologies. And, and when I say these kind of technologies, I guess I mean programs that have an increasingly sophisticated understanding of how we write and how text comes together and can kind of fill in the blanks in interesting ways, right? And I think, I mean, obviously autocomplete exists and is widely used <laughs> everywhere. So that ruins my text every day. That's the, I'm totally, I, I um, text sci-fi a lot, like a lot, at least a couple times a day. And uh, for some reason, autocomplete <laughs> does not figure out that I want to say sci-fi. It always says sci-do, which is not a thing. I don't understand it. Sci-do. Um, so that exists obviously, and it, and it proves that like these are going to, these tools are going to be an important part of our life lives. I think there's two branches now going forward. One is a, to me a little darker and more dystopian. The other one is more interesting. The darker, more dystopian one is a future version of Gmail, where it pretty quickly understands what kind of email you're writing, and basically offers to write the majority of it for you, or to like make a pretty good draft of this email for you to then go back and edit and then send. That's dystopian to you. Yeah, it is. It's oh yeah, it, it is. It really is. Just only because, only because I really, maybe this is just, no, I get it. you know, but it's because I think it's because of just who I am and, and how I make my living now. The idea of words that are essentially signed by a person, words that pretend to be from another human, but they're not really, they're yeah. essentially like, a form letter generated by a computer. I just think that's gross. I just think it's kind of a, an insult to inflict that on another human being. When does your dystopian lapse and you're like, fuck it. It's just, it's just how it is or well, does it? Well, you know, it, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I have tended to focus on the way in, in a way, almost heading off the dystopia. And this is what I've done. Like the, in the tools that I've been building, I've been trying to sort of, produce and share implementations of these techniques 
that are designed not to like make the world more efficient and, you know, make communication faster <laughs> and easier. Cause I frankly don't care about any of those things. Uh, but to make stuff weird, to make stuff weird. Yeah. Same to more. like, to nice. kind of, to weird it up, to, to add a little perturbation of strangeness and like, uh, whoa, what did I just read? Or like, what is going on over there? Give me an the example. World? I mean, the example is in, is Give in me the, some weird shit. I want some weird shit. <laughs> I should have brought, I should have brought a short story to read. Um, I mean, the, the, the answer, the weird shit is in sort of being in conversation with these machines. And in particular, machines, this is the thing that I think a lot of machine learning people in both research and industry overlook. They focus on the engine, assuming that the thing you train it on is going to be something big, broad, generic, useful. I mean, imagine all the emails stored in Gmail or imagine a just tons and tons of like news articles from Reuters and the New York yeah. Times. This is the kind of stuff that people use. Um, as we discussed, the things that I've tended to use have been old sci-fi stories. I've done experiments where I've taken two different bodies of text, really different, like one um, kind of horror fiction and another the text, the transcripts of Supreme Court proceedings and mashed those together and told the system like, all right, learn how to generate text that fits both of those at once. What? Yeah. And and the you goal take like Republican and Democrat. Absolutely. I mean I mean like the, press releases. The truth is there's a ton <laughs> there's a ton there's a ton of interesting work to be done in thinking about what we train these systems on and I think that's going to have to end up being the the kind of domain or the work of a lot of writers and artists and weird people because I just don't think Google or like Stanford. Yeah grad students are ever going to do it. They're just kind of focused on different things. The efficiency game is what it's used for today. Yeah, that's right. You're focusing on something that's, I think, way bigger, but everyone sees it as like an artistic kind of thing. Uh, but it feels like everyone in the human side of things, we're coming out of 100 years industrialization. We're like, okay, those are probably going to be lost jobs, maybe. And if so, then the only thing that matters is creativity and creative thinking. If the machine becomes creative, what happens? You know, it's interesting just to, I mean, that's a big question, a big thing. It's a big thing to think about, even to just narrow it down and, and think about text. You know, what if, what if I wasn't working on tools to kind of augment my own writing or the writing of a person? What if I really was making a machine that could write a short story? And that's not implausible. I mean, there's the, the pieces of the puzzle are sort of there and you can imagine with a, with a few more steps forward, just a, a few kind of increments, I could imagine a system where I say, not just finish this sentence, but okay, computer, write me a short story. And it writes one and it's actually pretty good. Have you heard of the infinite monkey theorem? <laughs> yes, yes, I yes. just heard about this two weeks ago because yeah. wow, that's Robert, yeah. my co-founder. Yeah, yeah. He's like, here's the deal. Right. If you have infinite monkeys and you give them a keyboard or typewriter and you let them just type, one of them will write a Shakespeare novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, I'm like, what? what it, it's, and I read it's about right. it. And I, blew, yeah, I was like, yeah. what, is, what is going on? I mean, what it, it actually, in a way, it, it loops back around because what that leaves out is that you need to identify it somehow. Somebody would have to be sitting there reading the output. This sounds like a great job, by the way. It's, it's like <laughs> somebody, somebody's going to get, get stuck with this job, <laughs> reading the garbled output of the infinite monkeys until they're like, yes, here it is. Here's Shakespeare. <laughs> Um, at which point you're like, maybe we should have just had that person write the Shakespeare in the first place or whatever. <laughs> and I think, but I think that's important. Um, it turns out the people who are to me smartest about this stuff, and it's not just the sort of the text based 
you know, machine learning experiments. There's a lot of people doing work with images, people doing work with sound and music, and all the people who seem to me smartest and most grounded uh, about these tools, they insist that there is this super important step at the end, which is um, a kind of filtering or editing or curation. You essentially ask these systems to pr produce a bunch of material. It's really weird, interesting material, but like that's not the end of the process. You, you as an as an artist, as a thinker, as an editor, have to sit there and say, mm, "This, not that. We'll use this. That will throw in the trash can." But it's, I guess, that I would say that's one of my like sci-fi predictions. I feel most confident about. What can you can you make that prediction very clear? Yeah, in in some number of years, I don't know if it's five, I don't know if it's ten. Most text editors that people use in email, in their offices, are going to have totally augmented writing capabilities and you're just so, tweaking it yeah exactly you're and there so you're rather the editor you're kind of you're kind of building a document block by block and then and then yeah going back and making some changes or saying oh that doesn't sound like me or but then again maybe you just select a whole paragraph and, and press the key that means like make more friendly and it adds more exclamation marks and maybe a few maybe <laughs> emojis. a few emojis yeah 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 i think that's i think wow. that's it's coming for sure and now my email marketing software, my blog software, my chatbot software for messaging, my Alexa software, whatever is powering our language, it's suggesting what it knows I already should do. Yeah. So yeah. I probably tested it too. And I'm just like, I'm more of like the legal department approving it. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I mean, in a weird way, but then, and it raises the interesting questions. Cause of course, you know, humans, we always, we like get these tools and then the tool, the tools change us and they change our behavior. It raises the question, like, then will there be this little thing where you'll write this email to your colleague using this robotic system, but then you'll put some little thing at the bottom that's the little wink of life. You know, there'll be some way of saying, hey, dude, or a little emoticon or some, like, secret code word that becomes evidence, like, it's because it's something that the robot could never write. I don't yeah. know what that would be. But it does, I mean, if it's all a perfect masquerade, then some people are going to find a way to poke through or a way to undermine that system. It's going to get weird. I think it's, it's, it already seems very weird to me in the era of like Slack and everything else yeah. to work in a, a very tech kind of saturated office. I think it's just going to get weirder and weirder. <laughs> Fascinating. I was at this talk one night and it was people from IBM Watson and they were showing how they can see cancer in the photos. They can, the machine can learn if it's cancerous. They claim it was like 99% effective. The human error rate for detecting cancer was like 80%. Yet the human was required to make the decision at the end because we still trusted the human who had a worse error rate. Yeah. And then they got this huge argument. One, I think the Watson guy was full of shit. Totally full of shit. But two, that's why I think he needed the human. Two, yeah. the other guy in the room was like a real scientist. And he was like, if you believed in it, and the percentages are right, you're going to kill 19% of people because you don't believe in the machine. And I was like, fuck. I like blew my mind. I was like, I don't know what I would do here. There's, I, boy, we are going to be faced with more and more of those challenges. It is. And it's, whose fault is it? It's deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually, I think one of the reasons, this is pretty gnarly, but actually one of the reasons that um, humans stay in the loop in a lot of these cases is that it's not clear. If there's not a human, it's not clear whose fault it is or worse for a big company like IBM or Boeing or whoever, Tesla, the people who make this autonomous software, if there's not a human in the loop, it might mean that 
the fault is theirs and like who they do don't you, want that yeah who's the insurance go out exactly exactly do you, think, do you think that's real like that's I, a huge i do think it's real it's gonna yeah there's a there's a phrase kind of bouncing around a little bit in kind of ai policy circles um the idea of a human operator or a human a little little bit of human judgment as a kind of a moral crumple zone you know the person's the one who can absorb the shock yeah. of something going wrong and it's not that we'll, we would never figure that out there's going to be new policies and new precedents set around liability in terms of ai decisions but um it's super unsettled right now and i actually think it is just easier for a lot of for a lot of these companies and, and institutions to be like yeah we, it's it's robin he was the one driving yeah. or he was the one who like looked at that screen and pressed a button that said okay i approve the limiter to advancements in the technology is because i need someone to blame yeah I mean, that's going to change. That's going to change, but it's such early days now. It you just, know nobody knows anything. My question to you would be, take, uh, that's like a very dark version of it. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but take it in a world that's, you know, uh, very politically correct today. We're politically correct, right? It's really hard to not be politically correct. Although some people aren't, and then the internet goes crazy. Do we care if robots are politically correct? Do we care yeah. if the sentence it produces? Yeah, we, I think that's we do. Racist I actually, or terrible I think, or I think we, I think we we do deeply. Um, there's and there's two pieces of that. One is, of course, they only they only learn what they're taught, and we've seen this time and time again. Yeah. Um, training sets have, of course, you know, of course they have biases built in. They're human artifacts. They don't just kind of come from the cosmos. They are assembled, put together, and fed into the computers by people. Um, so. So to the degree that what comes out the other end of these systems is biased or weird or like privileges one group of people or one set of ideas over another, I mean, that's actually telling, just telling you something about our world. It's not telling you too much about the, the machine itself. But the other thing I'd add is that, um, you know, I think it's like using a machine does not uh, free anyone, a company, an entrepreneur or an artist from these obligations to, to think about being like a responsible actor and speaker in the world and so for instance in all the stuff that i build at the very final um layer i put in a word filter like none wow. of these machines are ever that i create even though i mean because i don't know what's in that training set that's 150 <laughs> megabytes of text i didn't read you don't have people to read your i didn't zero. yeah exactly exactly right <laughs> exactly right the monkeys the monkeys are on the loose and these are these are some old sci-fi stories too, which is, it was, it was a different time. And they're actually, there, yeah. there is some, some it's like watching ads from the seventies. Like it's not appropriate. Today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and knowing that and, and I just being kind of mortified by the idea that someone trying one of these tools at home, kind of playing around with it would type something and then hit the tab key and then see something that was like wow. really bad, like sexist or racist or just, or just ugly in any of a number of ways. I just found that. So to my knowledge, it hasn't happened, but just the, the vision of it is so mortifying. Um, so yeah, I built in some safeguards to make sure that that won't happen. Do you think that the safeguards are one of the most important things to be built in this space? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I think, it's, done it. I think it's really important. Yeah. And it's just in part, in part because they just prevent weird stuff from emerging, weird, damaging, dangerous stuff. Um, and also because thinking about them is a really good habit. You know, yeah. it just so much of it, so much of the work tends to be focused on making it work. And you get and when it just when you see that spark of like, oh, my God, it's writing a sentence. Yeah. It's so exciting. <laughs> and but and so so thinking about the safeguards makes you just kind of take those next few steps into like, OK, it works good. 
how is this going to work in the world? Like, how is it going to fit into a broader world, not just my little laboratory here? And I think that's important. From the limitations of potentially politically incorrect vintage sci-fi to the 10 million monkey model, AI proves that GIGO, garbage in, garbage out, hasn't lost its power. We hope you'll take the time to visit Robin at his digital home, where you can find his blog, get your hands on his books and other writing, and sign up for his newsletter, which is really like getting a message from a friend. You can find him at Robin Sloan, and Sloan is spelled S-L-O-A-N dot com. Coming up in this final section of today's machine yearning, Shane and Robin dig into Robin's experiments with using machine learning to write music and how playing Go against the machine taught the grandmasters that there were levels to the game they had not even considered. In a conversation that was already really fun and thought-provoking, this section illustrates the degree to which human-machine collaboration might really be a 1 plus 1 equals 5 reality. So let's get to it. I also want to talk about, because you're using machine learning for music stuff. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like tell me about it. Where, when did When did the music stuff start and then how did you what are you doing with machine learning and music yeah that that was one of those funny kind of curveball things that you just could never predict ahead of time uh i'm not a musician myself or or even super deeply engaged by like music production or anything like that but i am a writer a fiction writer and they do make audiobooks out of basically all novels these days it's a huge market it's like the part of publishing that's growing the fastest and it is actually growing really so so what it means is the audiobook producers at the publishers are quite emboldened and rightly so um and so for both books they reached out to me and said well okay we're getting ready to record this audiobook could you write something new to kind of slip into the audiobook or like can you think of anything else that would make this just a little different a little special because they want to find a way to kind of differentiate it from all the other audiobooks out there and my new book um a part of the plot actually hinges on this kind of mysterious form of music that I describe in the text. And so it seemed actually, I don't know, obvious that in the audiobook you'd actually get to hear a little bit of this music. Maybe even frustrating if you got through the whole audiobook. I spent a lot of time in this book. The just, music from the book. From the book. This from, is sourdough? This is sourdough. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, and yeah, I actually had the thought, because we're talking about the audiobook, and I was like man if you get to the end of this book and you've heard me describe this mysterious music in like a language that no one could quite understand 10 different times and you never actually get to hear it you might actually feel a little bit cheated so um i decided it'd be a good opportunity to try to apply these tools to something really concrete uh it felt like something i could bite off it wasn't trying to produce like an album of generative machine learning created music it was just these that's happening though that is that absolutely (laughs) someone more than one i'm sure there's a whole host of people hard at work in their studios trying to be the first person out of the door to to do that and actually make it popular um no this was this was great because it was just these little snippets it had to be these little bits that we could kind of fit into the text in different places so it was actually ended up being a really similar process to the text except that instead of text it was uh audio waveforms and, and how do you make it what are you using what tool how, so like, what yeah, are you actually doing so in this case it was a piece of code um it was boy one of those great internet open source stories there had been a paper 
describing a system called sample RNN. And again, the RNN here is for recurrent neural network. Got so it. you see, it's all connected. It's yep. all this sort of same underlying core tool. The paper had described these great results with sound. Uh, the people who um, put it out had put out an impl implementation. I couldn't quite get their implementation to work. Someone else, a like a renegade genius in the UK named Richard Assar, did a implementation of his own, you know, just as as one does. He was like, I, I am interested in these techniques and I would like to write a version of that in my language of choice. So he writes it, <laughs> puts it up on GitHub. I find it because I'm, I'm looking around for a tool that I can use to do this audiobook thing. Get it up and running on my computer, feed in the audio. In this case, it was uh, this sort of Croatian choral singing that I've just loved for a long time. And, and was actually, it's what was in my head when I was writing my descriptions of this fictional music. So there's a kind of a parallel path here. Wow. Like I had used it as my inspiration in a sense for what I put on the page. And then I fed it into this, um, into this recurrent neural network and it worked great. I mean, it was, it was actually spooky. I want to finish with one thing you said earlier and you talked about the dystopian type future, but you never talked about the other side. What do you think the other side is that is actually a great thing that can happen? I think we've actually gotten a glimmer of the, not utopian, but, but really exciting kind of machine learning future with the um, AlphaGo project. That, what is that? Uh, DeepMind wrote a computer program. They're, you know, based, they're Google, right? Based on neural. Yeah, it's a, it's a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Alphabet. And um, they were the first people to write a Go program that could beat the best Go players in the world. And Go is a game. Go is a game. Like chess? Like what is Go? It's, it's, um, it is like chess in its, I mean, in terms of how seriously some people take it, it's definitely like chess. It is a more ancient game. It's really simple. You you recognize it. I think it has these black and white stones on a big grid. It's called checkers, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is like super, super checkers. Um, it's a hard, it's a really hard game. Um, a lot of strategic depth. Uh, the people who are good at Go are really, really, really good at Go. And there had been a lot of debate about how long it would take for a computer program to beat the best Go players. So DeepMind did it. So that's just, you know, interesting and kind of a milestone. But what's heartening and to me really, really exciting is actually what happened next. Because these Go players, like the super grandmasters of the world, some of whom got beat by AlphaGo, the program, and others who just kind of watched the matches, their reaction was, oh my God, we didn't know you could play Go like that. Wow. Like it, it, a few even described it as being somehow analogous to like playing Go against an alien. Like if aliens landed on earth, they're like, we are here not to conquer. We want to play your games. <laughs> <laughs> and that's amazing that it's not just, it's not actually just a story of like clash and conquest and like, oh, too bad humans. Looks like you're not the top of the food chain anymore. But instead, all these people who spent such, so much time studying this game, loving this game, in fact, now realizing there's, there are whole new avenues that they never even contemplated. And in a way, the door was opened by 
this computer program. Could the same thing happen for music, for writing, for so when you cinema? Said, when you said it's not about making writing easier, it's about making it harder. It makes it harder because it actually makes us better. I mean, that's the hope. And and you know, when it comes to creativity, it's probably less the case that there is better and worse, and more just there's just more. I mean, there's there's more ways to write. There's more things to learn. More ways to paint. Wow. Um, more ways to make music. And I, so that's that is the optimistic vision that uh, just like any other creative tool, these machine learning tools make more things possible, and and people get really good at them. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting you say that to end this of like, I never thought about it that way where what it's actually giving us is a, is a, because it's not a human, it doesn't have the emotion to get mad at, but it gives me another view and of openness that I didn't have before that hopefully makes me more open. Yeah. I mean, I can report it's, it's easy to kind of talk in, big sweeping generalities and kind of get into pretty heady philosophy about this stuff. I can report from the ground level working with these tools myself. They've changed the way that I think about my own writing. Wow. They've produced on the most basic level, they've produced bits of language that I think are really cool and interesting and that are making their way into my writing. You know, wow. my, so, ne- my yeah. next novel is going to have little bits of this machine learning generated text in it. Well, I thank you for coming by today. Hey, my pleasure. It was fun. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening. Get in touch on Twitter at Assist. DMs are open. We're super interested to hear who you think should appear on the podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and share this with someone who cares about how we make sense of these changing times. Machine Yearning by Assist is made by Paul Chufo and Michael Elsesser for Limina House. Have a great day. <laughs>